0: have you read Stephen Covey's The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People? I remember years ago when I first read that. I think it was the second habit. He had a great way to draw you in to a sober reflection of your coming funeral. Do you remember that if you've read it? Um, kind It's kind of a spoiler alert if you haven't read it. It's a great book. I would encourage everyone to read it. But he Tells this story of you, you're supposed to picture in your mind's eye, you are attending a funeral of a loved one. And as you walk up toward the casket, you see that it's yourself. And he says, I want you to imagine that three years from now, from this day, this is going to be your funeral. What do you want people to say about you? You're writing your own eulogy between now and then. And What do you hope that others will remember about you? Well, Solomon does something very similar uh, in this chapter 7 of Ecclesiastes, and we're going to talk about that today as we continue our study. Hello, everyone. Welcome. Welcome, Keith. Welcome, Curtis. Glad you could join us this morning. Uh, My name is Doug. I'm the president of Cross the Crown Ministries and New Covenant School of Theology. And what we do in these Monday through Friday daily devotional Bible studies is we study the Word together. And my hope is to help you really grasp the truth of God's Word so that you'll be transformed by the renewing of your mind and not conformed to this world around us. So that's what we're after today. Uh, I did want to... uh, to say that yesterday, as we closed off, we got a really great question from Dale, and uh, I will come back to that at the end of today's study and address it. Uh, today's content is is uh, a follow-on to last yesterday, but it's, it's quite a bit different. So we'll, anyway, we'll come back, and if you have other questions, feel free to put them in the chat there, and uh, I will address them as I can. And uh, so, do that. But before we get into our study, I like to do this every day. I like to remind you, that today's a good day. That's what we've been learning all through Ecclesiastes, right? Today is a good day. So I hope you have a cup of coffee and we're going to celebrate the goodness of today together. I'll say my part, then you say your part, and then we will uh, have our sanctified sip of coffee together and reflect on God's goodness. So ready? This is the day the Lord has made and your part is we will rejoice and be glad in it. Let's drink a sip of coffee together. Ah, good stuff. Good stuff. The Lord is good. All right, Dale is celebrating. We're gonna come back and look at his uh, his question. Very good. All right, so we're continuing on Ecclesiastes. Today we pick up chapter seven, and it's uh it's a sobering section, to be sure. Uh, this is one of those uh, set of verses that causes people to think that uh, Ecclesiastes is kind of a downer, that, it, uh, that it's depressing, uh, and it's, it's, it is sobering. It is, this is hard to think about these things, but it's good, as he will show us, and it's not depressing, at least it's not intended to be depressing, like we've been saying all the way through, to really understand reality as it is, not as we... Wish it was is the path to joy, especially as we consider the things as they are under the sun, and the things, uh, the fact that there is someone uh, beyond the sun. Hey, good morning, Martha. Glad you glad you made it. Uh, that's wonderful. I'm glad you glad you got the technology working and could join us. All right, so let's look at uh, Ecclesiastes chapter seven together. Uh, verse one says this. A good name is better than a good ointment, and the day of death is better than the day of birth. Or if you have the numeric and standard, you see they've inserted ones there. The day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. So he starts off with this uh, proverbial statement a good name is better than a good ointment. I don't know about you, I don't love the word ointment. Uh, that sounds like just this, um, this kind of salve that we might uh, rub on, uh, on sores and things. My, my dad always had this can of black salve that he used for just about everything when I was young. Um, uh, ointment, it's, it's the word oil, and this is kind of lost on us in our day, but oil was key to so much of life in the ancient world. And it's used throughout the Bible for all kinds of things. And it's it's uh, a symbol of prosperity, of royalty, of wealth, all those things. Uh, it's a symbol of joy. Uh, it's called the oil of gladness repeatedly in the scriptures. Now, we still use oil in all kinds of things today. You think of all the cooking oils and, and the, the debates that go on today about seed oils and olive oil and coconut oil and and all the other kinds of oils, but we still use it. Imagine if you removed all the oils from just food products, it would have a devastating effect on that. Uh, Well, think about um, lotions. We all love lotions. Uh, Well, I don't know if we all do, but uh, a lot of us do. I I know my wife, my daughters, they have lots of different lotions. We have um, different things that we like to rub into our skins to keep it soft. Uh, all those kind of things were true of the ancient world as well. Uh, Oil was used for cooking. It was used for sacrifices. It was used for anointing uh, kings and prophets. If you were a wealthy person and you were having a dinner party uh, of VIPs, you would often provide oil as they came into the house and you would pour it over their heads. And it would not only kind of make their faces shiny and glisten, uh, but it would also make them smell good. Remember, this was in the day before indoor plumbing, and showers were hard to come by. And if you traveled long distance uh, over a few days, you didn't stop and take a shower at the hotel, that kind of thing. So it also helped with that. Uh, So it was a sign of of power and wealth and royalty, all those things. In the uh, opening verses of Song of Solomon, uh, Solomon's love song, uh, the, the, the lover, the woman is attracted to the man because he has this perfume, this cologne, and his name is greater than the finest perfume. She's saying he is somebody because he has all this perfume, this cologne, and it's a sign of his wealth. And that's part of what attracts her to him. He's made a name for himself. So, Think of whatever status symbols, signs of prosperity and wealth and and riches and, and blessing, all those things. That's what's wrapped up in this word ointment or oil. And Solomon here says, a good name, a good reputation is better than all of that. Now, why? Why is a good reputation better than any other indication of wealth? Uh well, it's better because God values it. If you have a good reputation, it should be because you are doing the right things and you're blessing the Lord. Uh, it also is, uh, it's hard, right? It, it's something, it takes a lifetime to build a good name, a good reputation, and you can lose it. You can blow it in, in five minutes by uh, certain behaviors uh, and actions. Um, it, it also is the kind of thing that is going to win you friends, and people who will support you. You can be wealthy. You can be prosperous. You can have the oil of gladness and and all of that, and still be hated by people. But if you're if you have a good reputation, uh, that's of benefit to you. Think about uh, George Bailey in It's Wonderful Life. You know that story, right? It's, co- it's coming up on Christmas time, not too long from now, and you'll probably watch that movie. Uh, he he wasn't a wealthy man, but he was rich. In, uh, in a good name, good reputation, and people came out of nowhere to bless him in his time of need. In fact, I think that's one of the lines, isn't it? Um, somebody says at the end, George Bailey, you're the richest man in, uh, I forget the name of the town now. Anyway, you know, you know what I'm talking about if you've seen the movie. So Solomon says it's better to have that reputation than to have lots and lots of wealth and prosperity. And he uses that as a comparison to, interestingly, At the end of verse one, the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. Think about that. The day of your death is better than the day of your birth. Now, that's so contrary to the way that we think today. We don't particularly like funerals, and we certainly don't like to ponder our own mortality. We love to celebrate newborns. Think about what happens. Uh, some of you are grandparents, and you know what it's like to celebrate uh, with your children when uh, those babies come. I love babies. I always have. I got that from my mom. Uh, there were always babies around the house. She babysat when I was young, and uh, it's just, it's sort of built into my my uh, DNA, if you will, to uh, to love newborns, and, and we, we celebrate, we get excited, we rejoice, we just, we just, we love the thought of a new child being born into this world. But when we do that, at least from one perspective, we're being a little sentimental and kind of checking our brains at the door, aren't we? At least from one perspective, and that's the perspective that Solomon has been giving us through this whole book, the baby comes into this world And he or she has a life of strife ahead of him or her, right? I mean, there's so much pain and disappointment in this child's future. How many times has Solomon already said, in some circumstances, it'd be better off if you were never born or to be stillborn? I mean, that's the cold, hard truth that Solomon is looking into, life is hard. And there's all kinds of struggles and trials and, and failures. And the, the, the vapor, he keeps using that imagery, the vapor, life is this mist that is there for a minute, and then it dissipates and riches and pleasure and all these things are just mists that are there for a moment, and then they dissipate. And that's what this child has to look forward to. <clears throat> and so Solomon is saying, from that perspective of under the sun if, if we're not pondering what's beyond the sun. And again, Solomon is not talking as a <clears throat> excuse me, as a Christian here primarily. He is largely looking at things without contemplation of what comes after life and and God being on the other side. Just looking at reality as it is. Life is hard and the day you are done with the struggle is better than the beginning. So I don't encourage you next time you you go join a, uh, a young couple that just had their first baby, I don't encourage you to read this passage to them and, and remind them of all the hard things that are awaiting them. But as you look at your life, when you die, you'll finally rest from the hardships of this life. Now, I need to hasten to add, for anyone who may have come across this who's not a Christian, If you're not in Christ, if you don't believe the gospel, then actually the day of your death is going to be an awful day. Because the scripture tells us that it's appointed for man and woman to die once and then judgment. And the only hope of eternal life, the only hope of of heaven and joy after life is to believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you can do that today and then... For you and me, the day of our death is the best day of our life because it is that doorway into the eternal, glorious realm with Christ. But if we don't have that, if all we're thinking about is this life, then dying is a relief from all the pain and struggle. And that's what he says in verse one. Verse two, he says, it is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. Because that is the end of every man, and the living takes it to heart. Same concept, right? It's it's better, he says, to go to the funeral, to the to the house of mourning. That's what that's what he's talking about, a funeral, a memorial service, than to go to a celebration, a party. Because if you're if you're living and you're really thinking, if you have your, your eyes open to reality, it's better to ponder your own mortality. Uh, what's what's the uh, what's the occasion of great feasting? Again, we talked about childbirth, and that's part of it. Think about weddings. Uh, you know, I pastored for twenty-five years, and one of my favorite things to do uh, was weddings. I've always loved them. I loved to be there when this couple is making their vows together and and launching onto their uh, their new life together. And and we spend a lot of time in premarital counseling. My wife and I uh, do with couples, and I wrote a book on it, uh, a premarital counseling book. <clears throat> And the idea is to to really help prepare uh, these couples for a great life together. And and marriage can be wonderful; it can be filled with joy and and uh, and beauty and all that God designed marriage to be. But just like with new children being born, we come to weddings with this sort of uh, sentimentality, where we just celebrate. We have the party, go to the reception, and there's dancing and. And uh, the blessings by the best man and the the, uh, maid of honor. And everyone's thrilled. And yet, all of us who've been married for a while, we know, okay, this is good. This is great. But there's still some really hard times ahead for this couple. And depending on how much they pursue the right things and love and sacrifice and fulfilling their roles as God designed it and all of that, Marriage is hard, and there are struggles. There are times of difficulty, and uh, if you get into great periods of selfishness, or in God's hard providence, tragedy comes. Marriage can be really hard, and so we can come to these uh, these celebrations and again leave our brains at the door and stop looking at reality. Solomon here says it's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. It's better to go to the funeral and. Do what Covey said. Stare at the at the, the casket and think, what if I were lying there? What if that were what if this were my memorial service? What would I want people to say about me? What do I want my legacy to be? What do I want my eulogy to be? What do I want my testimony to the world to be? And if you do that when you're alive, you still have time to make a difference, to make a change. It doesn't matter how old you are. As long as you're breathing, there is, there is time for change. What do you want people to say primarily at your memorial service? What changes do you need to make? What, um, what adjustments, what mindset changes uh, do you need to make? He says here, the, the wise take that to heart, the living take it to heart. Verse three, he says, sorrow is better than laughter. For when a face is sad, a heart may be happy. We love to laugh, don't we? We love comedies. Uh, we love just to have a great belly laugh. Some of the greatest moments any of us have ever enjoyed are those moments when when we've just laughed and laughed and laughed and laughed. You know, those when, when it just sort of takes over. Um, and yet Solomon here says, uh, it's, it's better to to experience this sorrow. Now, I want to point out something. Uh, this word sorrow here in verse 3, it is the word that in Hebrew, its first definition is not really sorrow. Let me, uh, I think I have that where I can pull it up for you here. Yeah. Uh, the first definition, oops, that's not it. Here we go, sorrow. If you notice when I put my cursor over this word here, <clears throat> if you look down at the bottom here, the first definition is actually the word Anger. Anger is better than laughter, and then other places it's translated grief, or provocation. When it talks about God's anger, God's wrath, things that provoke God. So you think, okay, what's the what's the connection there? Uh, why does he use anger? Uh, or provocation, and how does that translate into sorrow here? Well, he's talking about when you're, when you're pondering your own demise and you're pondering anybody's death, there's often this deep emotional stirring that takes place that is similar to anger or provocation. If, if you're looking at the death of a loved one, and maybe they died of a horrible disease, and, and you're stirred with anger, kind of like Jesus was at the tomb of Lazarus. Uh, or if it was a, a, a tragic accident and you're, you're sort of stirred with anger and provoked at what caused this, if it wasn't just sort of uh, growing old and, and the normal um, aging process. Uh, if someone wronged them, then you certainly are stirred to anger. And you, you think about the stages of grief that we tend to go through, and that can be maybe over-scientized, uh, is that a word? Uh, the stages of grief and over-psychologized, uh, but we do have different uh, experiences as we grieve. Solomon here says, it's better to have that agitation, that stirring, that provocation, than simply laughing. <clears throat> and oftentimes, pondering death and, and really taking a sober look at it leads to great laughter. I remember uh, my dad died a couple of years ago, and uh isn't it fascinating how everything stops when a close relative dies? You've got all the of life, all, uh, cares of life, all the worries, all the things that just seem so heavy upon you, and then someone very close to you dies, and you stop everything. At least for me, I you know ignore email, don't really care about the, the weight of, of ministry, uh, whatever debts you may owe, whatever whatever great projects you're ahead of you, all the stuff that you ponder and worry about. you just sort of set it aside when a parent or a sibling or a, a child dies. It's like time stand at least for me, a time stands still. And I remember driving you know the long 12 hours back home for my for my dad's funeral. And of course, the the initial time, the first couple of days, you're getting ready for the service, and all of that can be mind-numbing. It can be it can be awful, actually. I think our whole funeral system is really, really awful. And then you have the service, and uh, you know you've got relatives you haven't seen for a while, and there's something about actually being at the at the funeral home or at the church, and going through the process of of the the graveside ceremony. And there's a heaviness, there's that reflection, and then there's the great release and the great relief. And I remember the 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 time after the memorial service, after the gravesite, just reflecting on my dad's life. And he's one of the funniest men I've ever known. And everybody just always talked, you know, remembered story after story after story, and just belly laughing. Had some of the amazing things that my dad said or did that were so hilarious, and we gathered at my brother's house and we sang songs, and and then somebody would throw out a, a funny saying that my dad would have, and we'd all just laugh and laugh and laugh and laugh, and it's it's like that great sorrow leads to wonderful joy and laughter. Because there's something about reflecting on the true mortality that awaits us all, the death that that awaits us all, and, and a loved one dying, that can sort of free us from the weight of the world. Like, my dad's not suffering anymore. My dad has no cares anymore. My dad, he's not worried about a thing. And he had such joy in life. And it's like in those moments when you realize one of these days you are going to be done with the struggle. You're going to be finished. And those projects suddenly don't take on such a, a grave consequence. And you start reflecting on what really matters. And it sort of frees you to just have fun today. Just enjoy today. Just laugh. So, so which comes first? I think sometimes it's not laughter that comes first. It's the great pondering and contemplation of death and dying that can lead to great freedom and joy. That That's what uh, Solomon says here, doesn't he? He says, uh, when the face is sad, verse three, when a face is sad, a heart may be happy. And that's so often what happens, I think, in, in funerals. And then verse four, the mind of the wise is in the house of mourning, while the mind of fools is in the house of pleasure." Think about our culture. It is filled with foolish people. We live among a people of fools. There's no doubt about it. And their mind, their thoughts, their contemplations are in uh, comedy clubs and the weekend so they can party. And the internet uh, where they're just seeking some pleasure after pleasure. He says, uh, the mind of the wise is contemplating death, not in a truly morbid way, not in a depressing way, but in a real way, which leads to wisdom because we'll make better choices when we think about our own demise and ultimately leads to great joy. And again, as believers, what we know is death is not the end. Death is that doorway into eternal life with Christ. So, Solomon would have us ponder, he would have us consider uh, our own funeral like Covey did. Imagine that you're going to die in three years. T- three years from today is your funeral. How will it change how you go through today and tomorrow and g- bring joy and laughter and serious, sober contemplation? So, thoughts, reflections on that before I get back to, uh, hey, babe. Good morning. <laughs> Have a great day. Thanks, baby, too. I love you. Love you. So before we get to Dale's question about yesterday, anything uh, on your heart and your mind uh, as you reflect on uh, on this sobering but uh, but good and uh, and healthy and uh, really inspiring message from Solomon? I would say uh, maybe you maybe need to ponder it, and we'll come back tomorrow and and talk about it. Uh, so I'm gonna I'm gonna interact with Dale's. Uh, And I realize you're on a delay here. I always forget this. You guys are on a delay. You're hearing me uh, several seconds behind where I'm at. And uh, sometimes it takes a a few moments to to formulate questions or statements. So you go ahead and reflect on today and I'll interact with that in a minute. Let me come back to Dale Waters' uh, question from yesterday. Yesterday was all about contentment. And Dale asked this question. He said, how would you differentiate contentment with life from a lack of drive or complacency on a practical level. So we were talking about um, uh, resting in, uh, in what how things are. and I made the comment, uh, this is not the same thing as complacency. We're not to go through life sim- just simply with a case sara attitude, whatever will be. We're not fatalists. we don't even though the, Solomon's point was God is absolutely sovereign over everything and if he makes something crooked, you can't straighten it out. We're not supposed to take this fatalistic attitude of, well, nothing I can do about it. I sometimes hear this when people say, well, it's just going to burn anyway. Now, there's a way to think about that that is good and biblical and healthy. But there's also a way to to think about that where what you're really saying is, I'm not even going to try. I don't care about life. I don't care about stuff. I don't care about the consequences of my actions. Everything's going to burn anyway, so what's the point? That's not the worldview of the Christian. So when it comes to contentment, remember Paul said in Philippians, uh, in fact, I, can, I think I can pull that back up for us uh, here to look at. Uh, yep, there it is. He said, verse 12 of chapter 4, I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So he said, I, I've learned this. So complacency is just saying, I'm just sort of going to accept the way things are and not try to change anything. God does not say, don't try to change things. Change what you can for the better. So think about politics. Uh, think about um, think about what's going on in our culture. Uh, Curtis just uh, uh, just made a comment here, and uh, I know a little bit about his story. And uh, you know, he lives in a part of the country where things are rough politically, and uh, just the uh, the critical theory stuff, the 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 liberal onslaught to try to crush our freedoms in this country. It's heavy where he's at. And it's uh, its going to cost him, just like it may cost many of us. And if, if we don't want to take this, well, I just have to be content with how things are. No, we have the freedom in this country to vote. And to, um, to get our kids out of government schools where they are being inculcated with uh, with this liberalism, this socialism kind of stuff, and and we can take other measures. We should we should not be complacent about those things. We should vote, and we should be educated in the right things, and uh, and and fight hard. Abortion, for instance, we should not be complacent when it comes to abortion. We should do what we can to try to overturn uh, the laws that permit abortion. Uh, in our own lives. Uh, whatever money you're bringing in now don't necessarily be content I mean, I mean do be content with it but don't be complacent if you can if you can earn more income do so if you can do a side hustle as they say or or improve your job situation do so that's that's great having wealth and prosperity as solomon has told us it's good it gives us a means to bless others and that kind of thing but contentment says i'm not going to be frustrated I'm not going to be discouraged with where things are right now. I accept God's providence of where I'm at. So the, the the main difference, Dale, is contentment says, I receive from God my current situation. I accept it. I'm not going to be a sinful, selfish person, even, through, even though I wish things were different. Uh, he says, I accept it from the hand of God. And I will love him and I will bless him and I will serve him and I will love others and I'm not gonna be awful to my family, my kids, my wife, whatever, uh, because I'm unhappy. Nope, I accept this and I rejoice in whatever I have, a lot or a little, like, like Paul. I, I've learned to be content and by his strength, I can can do this. But where I can change things, where I can improve my situation, where I can improve my life, where I can get into a better circumstance, I will do it. Knowing all the while, God may not allow that. I I may strive and strive and strive to get to a better job and God may not open those doors. And again, every step of the way, I remain content with his providence and yet where I can make things better, I want to. So I hope that answers your question. Uh, That's the kind of at the practical level. You know, if you can make more money, make more money. If you can uh, get into a better house, get into a better house. Um, All those kind of things. But at the same time, trust God and and rest in his providence. Uh, So Curtis here says, uh, 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 let's see, what did he say? So let's live like we're dying. So to quote a bad country song, (laughs) that's right. Uh, Is that redundant to say a bad country song? Oh no, Uh, live like we're dying. Yeah, we are dying from the day of your birth, really from the day of your conception, right? You were on your way to dying. That can be a morbid thing, or that can be a very freeing thing. Dale says here, mucho thank you. Excuses for laziness can get sneaky. Yes, exactly. We can sound so spiritual. So spiritual. And really, we're just being lazy and complacent. And we are not getting after what the Lord has called us to do. Yeah, great thoughts. All right, everybody. Thanks for your time. Uh, thanks for joining me. Uh, reflect. Reflect on where you're at. Reflect on the coming end of your life. Are you living the kind of life you want to leading up to that day? And be freed from excessive worry and serve the Lord and enjoy today. Have a great one and we'll see you back here tomorrow. God bless.